Welcome to episode 418 of The Sleeper and the Bust. It is Monday, January 16th, Martin Luther King Day. And I'm here with my co-host, Jason Collette. Jason, how's it going? Uh, it's going. I am uh, trying to pack and get out the door to go to Seattle. So listeners, if any of you do live in Seattle, I uh, do need dinner or beer suggestions for Wednesday night with my colleagues. I unfortunately don't have any free time to get together with anyone. But if you do have a suggestion... Tweet me. Leave it in the comments. Let me know where I should go. It's my first trip to Seattle. Jason, C-O-L-L-E-T-T-E on Twitter. Jason Collette. Hit him up. It's going to be a quick one, y'all, and it is Paul's fault. I'm referring to myself in the third person so that you pretend it's a different guy and you hate on that guy. Gustava. Freaking Gustava, dude. Always messing things up. No, it's actually my fault. Um, So it's going to be quick, but we got plenty to cover real fast here. A couple transactions, and we're going to do a picture battle that we talked about a while ago that uh, since we haven't recorded, we haven't been able to talk about it. So we got two young lefties that are, are really going to be in, intriguing guys in the market this year. So we want to dive in on them. But first, a little bit of news. Jose Bautista looks like he's finally going to go back to Toronto. And I say finally because this looked like an, an, an inevitability at a certain point. And it, that certain point was probably a month or so ago. Like it, it just right. really started to look like, where else is he going to go? I just don't see it. I just don't see any other real fits. The market was drying up. They needed a power hitter. No one wants to pay the pick associated with him because he's a little bit older. Boom. You get Jose Bautista back in at Toronto. Now, it's nearing agreement, so we've seen these things flip over at the last second, but this feels pretty steady, uh, so we can go ahead and cover it. It's a re-signing, so we don't have to go too deep, but what do you think? Jose Bautista back with Toronto. Uh, well, hey, the other news on there is that apparently the Rays were in the final three of this, oh. so they were actually trying to spend money. So I don't know if that precludes them trying to chase Mark Trumbo or just saying, well, hell, if we're going to maybe just go get Chris Carter. They're, they're trying to get one of these bats, clearly, but I, maybe this was an on-base skills uh, type of thing. But going back to Toronto, if you look at it from the depth chart perspective, I think Justin Smokes your odd man out here Definitely. as you're trying to make room for – trying to make room for guys, uh, when you look at roster resource, you're like, oh, fine, I'll just move Ezekiel Carrera back to the fourth outfielder role. Uh, but Jose Bautista can't play right field anymore. That arm's joke. It's, uh, and it's that, that's, so bad. that's not coming back. So do you switch into left field? And then Pierce, you, you got to make room for Pierce. You've got the Morales bad signing that you panicked and signed early. So I'm curious to see how they try to put this stuff together. But to me, Justin Smoke is your odd man out because you can do you can do an Upton Carrera platoon in right field if you want. Mm-hmm. Uh, you still you still have Pilar in center field. You've got Pierce in, in left uh, for most times. They need a lefty at bat in the outfield. Maybe that's Goins because Michael Saunders um, is on the move somewhere else. Which we'll get I, to. We knew that was happening anyhow. Uh, so. That's really where I see this impact. Yep. Justin Smoke uh, gets marginalized, but I don't think this team's done yet either because it needs another left-handed bat in the outfield. So I'm wrapping up on Bautista. Again, not going to go too deep because it's a re-signing, but had an injury-plagued year last year, only 116 games, which yielded just a 22 homer, 69 RBI season. 69 RBI is very nice, but not as fantasy useful as the 114 and 103 of the two previous seasons. Do we get 150 games out of a 36-year-old Bautista? And if not, what are we looking at, Jason? If they can, 
I don't know if we can because he's not again with Morales Morales there. It's not like he can go out there and play first base. Perhaps if Bautista can play first base, so uh, if they can hide him some at DH, hide him some at first base, and keep him out of the outfield, I think we could okay. uh, get him on the on base skills. But that's really where uh, this is a this is an odd situation to have when you look at this lineup outside of Morales and a Carrera. That's an extremely right handed lineup, which it always has been. But, uh, but Danian and Lefty, I just can't get over this. When, when it, yeah, when yeah, it this was, is definitely not as good. Yeah, when it was super righty two years ago, it was so elite that it was like, eh, who cares? But now it, 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 it thins out there in that second half, and so then it looks like a much bigger issue at this point. It's not that I don't think Morales can do well for them, but I agree with you. They, they kind of box themselves in and they curb their flexibility because he is such a DH only. I know he stood in the outfield a few games last year for KC, but that's not something that Toronto's going to want, uh, if they're being smart. So if you would have told, if you would have told Toronto they could have Jose Bautista at two, basically 240 is what's being rumored as. If you would have told them that two months ago, there's no way they put Morales on this roster. This was back yep. when they said Bautista wanted five one fifty and yep. Carnacion wanted four one hundred or whatever, and 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 they listened to the the agent speak. And now, yeah, you know, they they could have had Trumbo if they wanted Trumbo. They could have had uh, Carter if they wanted Carter. Now they get uh, Bautista at a hundred million less than he was looking for early on, and now you're stuck with now you're stuck with uh, Morales. Yep. Uh, it, it kind of the downside of getting in the market too early is uh you can uh, you can be on the wrong end when that market shakes out you can't you can't trade that contract because again with Trumbo and Carter still sitting out there talk to me about why Morales is the better option not at the contract that you just gave them than either one of those two not a chance it's just exactly it's the slugger market right now is just getting depressed because there's not enough landing spots. And so it's going to be interesting to even see where those other two guys go. But one guy did find a landing spot, not quite a slugger like these other guys. In fact, we just briefly mentioned him, Michael Saunders. He's going to wind up with Philly. This is kind of an interesting one. Didn't really see this coming necessarily. Uh, but Philly out there making some moves. They feel confident that they can mess around. I don't know that they, in their heart of hearts, would say, hey, we're a full-on contender this year. But remember, they did some things for the first couple months last year. We all kind of knew it would fizzle because, uh, for me, it was really the fact that they just didn't have the depth of bullpen uh, to hold up over 162 games. Not not to mention the entire team just didn't look like a team that was going to compete for a full season. But maybe if they extend that out this year and, let's say, they're competing for the first three and a half months, then they can maybe make a move. And, and assess their situation there and say, hey, if we make a move or two here, we can maybe get a wild card. I don't know, but uh, I do think this is a team on the rise, and they're doing things right. Even when you are a young team that's building, you got to have some veterans. And so getting Michael Saunders going to play out there in right field for them continues to keep their lineup nice and balanced as well. They've got a couple switch hitters, a couple lefties, and then four righties. So they are nice and balanced on on the four and four side. When they're facing a righty, they're going to have four lefties, four righties. Saunders going to plug right into the middle of that lineup. What do you expect out of Michael Saunders as a, as a Philly? Yeah, this team gets better as they get rid of Ruben Amaro Jr. Go figure. That's so um, weird. 
it's so weird how that worked out. I mean, obviously the, the tough hit here is the, those folks who had Aaron out there on the cheap because yep. he's going to lose playing time here. I mean, when you look at a natural platoon situation between he and Saunders, Saunders can't hit lefties. Not to say Althea can't hit righties, but that's what you're going to maximize the strengths with Saunders. So that's your platoon situation. I was just talking to our, our friend Seth who has him at one dollar. He's like, eh, at the dollar, I'm still going to keep him. And I, and Which you I should, with, yeah. but if you had him, you had him like upper single digits, I throw him back because again, he's on the short side of a platoon here. Um, and Odubel Herrera is not losing playing time. Howie Kendrick, they went out and traded for. They'll let him play. Maybe they trade him. Uh, maybe Althea can pick up some at-bats there. But that's really where uh, it's going to hurt ballpark-wise. I think it's a really nice place for Saunders to maximize uh, the power approach he started developing last year. I think he had 24 homers last he year. Did. It felt like 27 of those came before the All-Star break. Because <laughs> uh, as somebody who owned him, he was uh, not good in the second half of the season. Uh, wore down. Maybe that's the side effect of missing most of the prior season. I was going to say, uh, you know, Injuries have always been an issue with him, so getting yeah. through that grind of 100, what did he play, 140 games is something that he has he had never done. That was a career high for Michael Saunders. Plus, I believe I believe there's been some back issues there in the past. Maybe playing on the artificial surface in Rogers Center was a problem, uh, especially when you're when you have 19 or you know you have nine road games on artificial surface, 81 home games. So there's 90 right there. Um, so landing in a place with grass could help him there too. So I think it's a nice. Uh, I, it doesn't really change my valuation of no. him. Uh, from from where I was last year, it's, it's Saunders is a guy that I've always liked, and uh, keep going. Now he's an NL guy, so in my NL only league, I can chase that. I was going to say that that's the biggest shift is that he he now becomes NL only. Where that's where his best value is. He's mixed league viable, but Michael Saunders is really NL only, uh, going to make a potential impact there in the middle of that lineup. So uh, those are the two big transactions that have happened since uh, we last had a show here. Uh, you know, and I talking last week, so. It's going to give us some time to talk. Plus, like I said, we're on a little bit of a tight schedule here. Uh, but we get a chance to talk about some pitchers. And we're going to be doing this throughout the rest of the offseason, these kind of pitcher battles, uh, for lack of a, lack of a better term here, where we just take a couple guys who are pretty close in the market, kind of similar, uh, value. Not necessarily, like these two actually are, are kind of similar in that they're both, uh, lefties of with prospect pedigree they're not always going to be this well paired in terms of the, uh, the actual players it's going to be more based on their uh, market values and these two also happen to be close there so it really worked out to talk about Carlos Verdon and James Paxson as an either or sort of situation so let's just go ahead and dive in and, and talk about these two we're obviously going to hit on both but right off the bat which one are you favoring Jason between James Paxton and Carlos Verdon for 27 only, who are you favoring? For 2017 only, it's going to be Paxton because Rodon pitches for a team that's in an active dump. Uh, it's really tough to look at wins, but then again, you have to you have to look at pitchers who have the best opportunity exactly. to get a win. And that's that's really the deal breaker. If, if this was if we started this conversation three months ago, I really like Rodon this year. I mean, you look at ADP and these guys are about eight picks apart right now. Um, they're going, you know, 53rd overall, a 53rd starting pitcher for Rodon, 57th for Paxton. Um, their range of picks is right about the same, but they're just outside of the top 200 overall. But it's, I mean, that White Sox team, it's, it's a race to 60 wins and that, that Mariners team is going to fall into 75 wins. Worst case scenario. Oh, yeah. It's a nice, it's a very nice team. 
uh, and they're going to be chasing the Astros. Uh, I think I saw something today where Buster only has them picked as one of his top 10 teams. And that, to me, is the deal breaker here because I, I love the skills. I love what I saw what Paxton did in the second half of the season, you know, the velocity uptick. Rodon made some nice strides in the second half of the season as well. But uh, situation, man, it's just not a good thing there for Rodon. He could be like the new Jose Quintana for that team once they trade him off, whereas he pitches his guts out and gets nine wins. Yeah, I, I actually think that that's a really good assessment in terms of the 2017 value. I don't have a ton to add to that uh, because the wins kind of can be kind of the, the, the tiebreaker here, right? And like you said, we can't necessarily project them. But you know you can look at situations where you're going to be set up better for them. If Carlos Rodon somehow wins 14 of their uh, 70 wins, we wouldn't necessarily be surprised. But you have to go through and assess what are my likelihood, what's the likelihood I'm getting these wins here. And that certainly favors Paxton. So you had somebody like Paxton who was able to add velocity while improving his command. You don't usually see that. However, Jason, there's been uh, health issues consistently with James Paxton. I think that's the big deal that we have to address with him. So you're favoring Paxton over Rodon. I totally get that. But what are your expectations of Paxton specifically? Um, expectations high end. I'm looking at him like a, a 12 to 14 win pitcher with an ERA around 350. As strikeouts eight and a half to nine per nine. Okay. Uh, that's what I'm looking at with Rodon. I think the strikeouts will be the same. The ERA is actually going to be the same. He may have a, a few more walks because the command, we saw it a little bit last year where it sure. was hit or miss. Um, and I, I look at him as a, a nine, a nine to 10 win pitcher on a very bad team. It's not going to be his fault. Uh, I just wish we had a way to put these two in a vacuum, put them on an equal team because oh, the, yeah. talent wise, these guys are so close. Uh, so close together. The health's on Rodon's side. Paxton has the velocity, but he's just surrounded in a better situation. He's got the very nice bullpen behind him, got the offense around him. Man, if you know the, the 12 to 14 wins could be on the low end, but I hate projecting any starting pitcher for more than 14 wins. I, I, I'm with you. It, it's just too difficult to do that and feel confident about anything. By the way, just uh, since we mentioned that their their proximity in the market sp sp spurred this. Uh, you got Carlos Rodon going 53rd off the board at pick 201. James Paxton at 57th at pick 209. So that's basically interchangeable, right? Mm -hmm. You're going to have some drafts where Paxton's going first, others where Rodon. Right now, Rodon's going first a little bit more often. Yet, interestingly, Paxton's minimum pick is actually higher at 155 compared to Rodon at 166. So Rodon's we, a sexier one. I mean, yep. he, he did look at second half. much younger. Yeah, I think Paxton's turning 28 this year, correct? Yes. Okay. Um, for like, I have Paxton at $10 in my AL home league, and I'm absolutely keeping him at $10. Oh, yeah. I, I, I couldn't agree more. Like, listen, it might actually end up being a Rich Hill situation where he only goes, you know, 120 innings because he can't dodge the injuries. But I think they could be a good 120 if that's what we get, which is what we got last year from Paxton. But there is still that dream scenario where he goes a buck 80 and really delivers a big season. So I'm excited about both these guys, but I'm with, uh, I'm with you. It's Paxton first. Uh, both of them have value. Just don't overpay for Rodon because uh, of the fact that you're just probably not going to get the wins. Jason is a really quick one, but what I'm actually going to do is append, uh, append a few viewer questions or excuse me, listener questions onto the end of this to extend it a little bit. And then uh, what's your status for next Sunday? 
Um, I am good for next Sunday, but earlier the better because I have a 6 a.m. flight to Orlando on Monday morning. Um, I did hear, I did listen to you all uh, the other day and you were asking, you were like, hey, we're going to ask Jason's thoughts on Drew Smiley oh, just real right. quick. Um, I, I think Drew Smiley is headed down the Anibal Sanchez path uh, of career. Both of, these guys, both of these guys have dealt with labrum injur- injuries that have not been surgically corrected. We've seen what happens with Anibal Sanchez, where he gave up too many home runs last year, and the stuff just doesn't look as good. I have, I've always had the same concerns with Smiley ever since he came back, and I'm glad that that was the pitch of the Rays dealt instead of one of the other guys because it, it still allows them to try to compete for a wild card this year if they can add a couple of more pieces. But uh, I am I'm off that Smiley bandwagon just because – um, I, I, I wasn't, I did not like what I saw last year. And it, that, that little, that loss of a little bit matters when you pitch the way he pitches. When you go up, down, and if you miss, you know, he likes to work in the top part of the zone. That fastball doesn't have the same kind of life. It ends up in the seats like it did a lot last year. Yes, I, I honestly, I, I told them, I tried to warn them that you were going to be coming in hot on this Drew Smiley take. So uh, hopefully, they listen because I think there's still some some Drew Smiley hype that needs to be toned down. I'm not saying don't draft him at all or anything like that. There's a price that it's fine, but uh, I don't see the reason to be super duper excited for Drew Smiley. Even I, I may let I may you know if if in an AL only auction, you know there's no way I go double digits. Maybe I say eight, and if somebody says nine, goodbye. Uh, it may be seven. There's something there. But again, if we talk about projecting a guy to 12 to 14 wins, I'm not even comfortable projecting Smiley for more than 150 innings. I, I'm truly not. I know that he had 30 starts last year, but there was a lot of five and dive and four in the door starts in, in that, uh, from what I can recall. Uh, and again, once, once that snowball started, it just got so much worse for him. It's just yep. like, ah, uh, this, uh, you, know, you could just see him flop down, didn't like the way. He particularly struggled when Kiermaier was out last year because he's such a fly ball pitcher. And some of those outs that Kiermaier was converting into outs, uh, his replacements were converting into extra base hits. And uh, that really affected him as well. Uh, and perhaps that's some of the language, uh, some of the body language we saw and some of the reasoning why he struggled. But now he's going to have all of, he's going to have a really good defensive outfield behind him. Uh, but Tropicana, Safeco, I don't see that much of a difference there. No. Uh, I just, I'm still concerned that as I'm struggling with possibly a third shoulder injury, the way it feels lately, I'm concerned about that shoulder holding up. All right. Well, appreciate that, Jason. Um, I'll let you get to, to your flight. Where are you going again? Seattle. Oh, that's right. So have a great time out in Seattle and uh, we will talk next week. All right, bud. Take care. All right, y'all. So this is a little bit of a short episode, so I figured I would tack on, uh, a couple of email questions that kind of lengthen it up just a little bit. Um, so hopefully that works out. Let's just go ahead and dive right into it. First question I've got here is from Eric. He says, talk me out of keeping Vincent Velasquez in a 14-team keeper league. Only ERA, WHIP, and K per nine are scored for pitchers. We keep a max of eight players from one season to the next. And right now I'm keeping these seven. Nolan Arenado, Anthony Rizzo, J.D. Martinez, Matt Carpenter, Christian Yelich, Madison Bumgarner, and Justin Verlander. I also have Rich Hill, Drew Pomerantz, and Taiwan Walker in consideration. Should I keep Velasquez as number eight? or someone else, or just keep seven and pick from the non-keepers in the eighth round. Velasquez is so young and could be a K-9 game changer for a while. Here's the thing, Eric. I don't think you should keep Velasquez. I would love to talk you into that, but 
I can't. As, as Even as an avid Velasquez backer, I want to talk you into keeping Rich Hill. I actually think this is the perfect league setup to keep Rich Hill. You're counting three rate stats for pitchers, ERA, whip, and, and case per nine. Hill gets a major boost there. I mean, it doesn't completely erase his innings deficiency, but it certainly mitigates it. So you have you have Verlander and Bumgarner as your horses, who, who you can reasonably put an expectation of 200 plus innings on. And then Hill supplements their already good work with excellent ratios for 100 to 120 innings. Now, he hasn't, he hasn't put up 120 innings in a while, so even that might be high. But there's also a chance that he goes 150 and, and, and that's huge. So I, I think, I think you just have to go with Rich Hill out of this group. Um, I'm not sure even that there's somebody, I mean, I guess there could be somebody dropped if somebody, if, if a team has, you know, nine excellent players that you might want more, but I'm just going to say, go with Hill, take the certainty of, of, of him in, in so far as it is, I know it's, it's weird to say that, but I'm saying in comparison to betting on what might come available in the, uh, in the draft there, listen, Velasquez should remain a strikeout boon, but he could be another year or two away from really establishing himself as an ERA and whip asset. I can see more, more ups and downs, flashes of brilliance, uh, but then a couple implosions that, that maybe leave his ERA uh, on the on the higher side comp- relative to his actual talent for Velasquez. So it's Rich Hill for me, and it's not particularly close on this one. Next one I've got here is from Cooper. It says, has anyone done a study of not matching up your team's number one pitcher with their number one pitcher? I feel that over the course of the year, it would make more sense to pitch your number five starter against a guy like Kershaw, assuming everything lines up leaving your number one to face a better matchup. Playoffs, of course, would be different, but I feel a win advantage could be had in playing the right matchups throughout the year. Here's the thing, Cooper. First off, I appreciate the email. I don't know if anyone has done a study on this, and if if anybody knows of anything, please feel free to send it in, but I'm unaware of that. I think that you you have a key line in here or a key key phrase that really just kind of cancels it before we can really start. And you put assuming everything lines up. And the simple fact is, is that over the course of the six month season, things aren't just aren't just aren't going to line up enough for you to kind of take that advantage as a team at every turn. Um, you know, you, you're look at some of the guys that get forced into a start from AAA or or pulled out of the bullpen over the course of the season for just about every team. Look look, look at those instances, and that that happens a lot because. They just have to. You, you don't have the luxury of, of pulling out the, the super prospect because his day hasn't come up or, you know, relying on the guy who's one day away from coming off the DL, but nobody, you know, your other four guys just aren't ready. He can't come off the DL, so you got to go with the bullpen day. We see that stuff happen regularly because it just doesn't line up. So I don't think you can play that game of trying to line everything up over the course of 162 games to really get your edge. And I just don't think, first of all, and I also don't think that teams necessarily want to punt. I understand against Kershaw, yeah, you, you think, hey, he's the best going. We don't feel confident about a win. But I don't know that teams look at themselves on on other days, even against the other bona fide aces, you know, Madison Bumgarner. I don't know that teams always go in saying, well, we're going to lose this one. You might see it in a, um, 
in a Vegas line, Vegas might have him at minus 250, uh, you know, the bump, uh, the Giants with Bumgarner against a certain team. And that means that they're a heavy underdog, the other team facing him. But that doesn't mean that they throw it in and say, well, let's just throw our number five starter, take the L and move on and, and, and focus elsewhere. I, don't, I just don't think that you can really line it up that way uh, to, to get much of an edge. Now, if you could, I still don't know how much edge it would yield, to be honest, just the way the ebbs and flows of the way baseball goes. But uh, I think the, the real issue, like I said, that stops this before it really starts is the fact that you just can't line things up that way. And, and we see uh, things get off kilter at certain points in the season and then they kind of come back, right? We always have these ace days in, in August or even in September where it's like, whoa, all the aces are going or all the number ones because – I think there's a difference, by the way, between a number one and an ace, but we don't have to get into all of that. But either way, I think it's it, it's kind of interesting. I, I kind of love to watch the ebb and flow of the schedule. And, oh, today a bunch of frontliners are facing scrubs. And, wow, so that means the schedules are off kilter. And then, boom, four months down the line, we're in late August, and you have seven, eight, or I guess it would be have to be an even number. You have eight, ten aces going up against each other. Um, so, yeah, I just – it's interesting. It's it's a it's a fun thought exercise, but I don't think it gets much beyond the uh, the the realm of the hypothetical because you just don't have that luxury. Injuries, underperformance, et cetera, et cetera, just lines up uh, to work against you to to be taking that advantage. Appreciate that, Cooper and Eric, for both y'all's emails. Pitchingpod at gmail dot com. Excuse me, that's uh, sleeping sleep sleeperpod at gmail.com sick life paul pitching pod was uh the email for the podcast that doug thorburn and i used to do i apologize again sleeperpod at gmail.com uh you can definitely email in i'll be i'll still be doing some solo mailbag episodes and i just recently did a the first mailbag article and so some things will be better for audio some things will be better for writing some things won't really fit either and i'll try to answer those um Detail is nice, but within reason, right? And so, you know, keep that in mind too that, you know, I, I need some details to answer the question, but if we get too deep, if it's too in the weeds, it can become a, a bit challenging to use in either format. So if you're hoping to get more of that widespread format, do your best to bring something that has a little bit more wide scale usability. And I'm not saying that you can't send your keeper questions that are specific to you with your unique setting. That might just be a one-off answer from me. But if you've got something that's like, hey, I want to evaluate these two. I'm, I'm going off of these two guys for my last keeper. Who should I take? And then I can basically, in a, in a piece or in a podcast, talk about those two guys at large and then come down to a decision for you and your keeper league. That has value both to you specifically and to the other listeners who are interested in those players. So anyway, I appreciate that. Sorry that it's a little bit of a shorter episode today. Uh, but hey, we're, we're, we're getting back on track. We're working really hard on our player caps right now. So that's why the uh, pod schedule has been a little bit sporadic. Once we put those to bed, we're going to be closer to doing our three to four per week. And then, of course, in season, which I'm not just talking the regular season. In season, we can consider from March 1st on we're going to be at our four times a week. So you have that to look forward to as well. And listen, I know that the audio issues have been a bit of a nightmare. And I, I, I want to assure you one thing. At any level, when that annoys you, please understand that it annoys me a million fold more. Uh, it is so frustrating to deal with this stuff. 
that uh, used to not be an issue. When Call Graphs worked, which is the program I used to do it to record, through Skype, uh, we rarely had recording issues or volume issues. It was very, very smooth. And this was not some detailed, you know, immersive program. It was just a little program that would record everything and, and spit out a great file to use. I've tried these other ones and gosh, they're so frustrating and trying to figure out the right levers for all of it has been nauseating. However, today, just minutes before I recorded this, a kind listener tweeted me suggesting that they might be able to help me with some of this uh, editing and, and keeping the noise levels proper on each side. And so I think I'm going to take them up on their offer. And so we're going to get to the bottom of this. And I apologize for, like I said, I'm trying to figure it out. I'm not a complete idiot. So despite what some of these issues might make you think, and this is guy know how to do anything. Part of the problem is I'm looking at the program while we're recording and it looks like the levels are great, but I can't fully tell, right? It's just giving me a little bar of, of the volume bouncing when Jason or myself is talking. Then when I get the file, I'm super loud and the other guy's super quiet or I'm super quiet and the other guy's super loud. I'm like, well, this was not noticeable during the recording and we obviously can't go back and, and record, re-record the whole thing. So it's been frustrating and I, I sincerely apologize, but it keep please understand that it's something that will continue to be foremost on my mind to make sure that the quality of the audio is just as good as the quality of the content, which I hope you continue to find uh, to be at a high level. So very excited about the 2017 season of the podcast. Appreciate you all for listening. If you can leave a review on iTunes, let us know what you think. Uh, hit me up on Twitter at Spore, S-P-O-R-E-R. Um, you know, share it with your friends if you want. I know some of you like to keep it under wraps for your fantasy advice, but uh, if you feel feel so inclined, please share it as well. We're definitely trying to expand and make the podcast better. So also, if you have if you have suggestions on that, I'm always open to hearing that as well. Anyway, I'm rambling at this point. I appreciate y'all listening. Have a good one.